0: naming and being an essay by walker percy from signposts in a strange land what is naming is it an event which we can study as we study other events in natural history such as solar eclipses glandular secretions nuclear fusion stimulus response sequences let us take a concrete example A father tells his two-year-old child that this, pointing to a certain object, is a ball. The child understands him, and whenever his father speaks the word, the child looks for the ball and runs to get it. But this is not naming. The child's understanding is not qualitatively different from the understanding which a dog has of the word ball. It can be construed in terms of response conditioning, sound waves, neural impulses, brain patterns. It is, in other words, a sequence of happenings which take place among material beings and is, in this respect, not utterly different from a solar eclipse, glandular secretion, or nuclear fusion. But one day the father utters the word ball, And his son suddenly understands that his father does not mean find the ball or where is the ball, but rather this is a ball. The word ball means this round thing. Something has happened. We may quarrel about the good and the bad of it, some saying with the Polish semanticists that what has happened is a major catastrophe for the human race. Some saying with Helen Keller that what has happened is nothing less than the discovery of the world and the coming to oneself as a person. But beyond any doubt, something has happened. During the next few weeks, the child will hold the ball and speak its name a thousand times to anyone who will listen or to no one at all. In so doing, he experiences a joy which has nothing to do with the biological need satisfactions which have determined all previous joys. What then has happened? Is the child launched upon a delusional state which will plague him the rest of his life? Or has he hit upon the secret of knowing what the world is and of becoming a person in the world? Whatever has happened, it is a scandal to modern philosophers of meaning. The semioticists are determined that meaning shall be a response, not utterly different from a solar eclipse or from dog salivation. But, having said this, they are left with the problem of accounting for man's often foolish behavior with symbols, and of dealing with the offensive little sentence, this is an oyster. For, clearly, as they never cease to tell us, this is not an oyster, and a man cannot eat the word oyster. It is for this reason that so many Semioticists are bad-tempered. They are forced to be moralists and to scold man for his follies. One can easily imagine that astronomers would be bad-tempered too if... After discovering the laws of planetary motion, they discovered that solar eclipses refused to obey these laws and, in general, behaved perversely. But it would be a very poor astronomer who spent his time scolding the planets instead of trying to figure out why they behave as they do. Name-giving and naming are a scandal to the behaviorist and semanticist because something unprecedented has taken place. Naming is, in fact, utterly different from a solar eclipse or a conditioned response. If one tries to explain naming as a sequential happening among material existence, as a sound calling forth a thought or referential activity, one misses the point, or, as Mrs. Langer says, one leaves out the most essential feature of the material. A name does not call forth something, it names something. But it does not help very much to say that a name names something, and leaving it at that, we only succeed in concealing, rather than clarifying, a most mysterious happening. What does take place when something is named? What is the meaning of the mysterious question, what is that? What is the meaning of the even more mysterious answer? that is a ball let us consider the situation immediately before and immediately after the act of naming the elements are the same in each case there are four of them the father the child the ball and the word ball which trembles in the air what happens is clear enough in the simple case when the child understands the word ball as a signal and looks for the ball The child's behavior is a sign-response sequence, strikingly similar to Mead's conversation of gesture involving two dogs, barks, and a bone. But then it dawns upon the child that the sound ball means the round thing. He holds the ball before him and utters the same sound, and now he too intends that this sound shall mean the ball. From this point forward, we may no longer use the casual, sequential frame of reference which had served so well for the understanding of every event in the universe, from stellar phenomena to glandular secretions. Henceforward, we must find some other frame of reference. What has changed in the situation? The four elements are still the same, the father, the child, the ball, the word ball. And yet we know from the testimony of blind, deaf mutes, as well as from the observation of normal maturation, not only that something new has happened, but that the event is probably the most portentous happening in the development of the person. Here, however, we encounter a difficulty, for trying to penetrate the act of naming is like trying to see a mirror while standing in front of it. Since Symbolization is the very condition of our knowing anything, trying to get hold of it is like trying to get hold of the means by which we get hold of everything else. As a consequence, naming passes itself off as the most trivial of events. A thing is named, and what of it? What could be more transparent? Where is the mystery? We begin to appreciate the mystery when we realize that the act of naming, or denotation, is generically without precedent in natural history. I mean this in the most radical sense possible. One may reply with a shrug that a glandular secretion or a conditioned response is likewise without precedent in the universe. But considered in the broadest frame of reference, glandular secretions and conditioned responses are the same sort of events as stellar explosions or nuclear fusions. There occurs an energy exchange mediated by structures, a sequential interaction which leads itself to formulation as a function of variables, A equals FB, the state following a nuclear fusion is thus a function of the state before. A dog's response to the signal ball is a function of the stimulus and the electrocoiloidal state of the dog's brain. But when one names a thing or understands from another that a thing is so named, the event can no longer be interpreted as a causal function. Something has happened, to be sure, but it is not an interaction. It is something utterly different, an affirmation. Naming or symbolization may be defined as the affirmation of the thing as being what it is under the auspices of the symbol. When the child understands that by the word ball, his father means the round thing, his understanding is of the nature of a yes saying. Helen Keller's memorable revelation was the affirmation of the water as being what it is. But an affirmation requires two persons, the namer and the hearer. This is water means that this is water for you and for me. Only a person may say yes and he may say it only to another person. A dog may appear to say yes by acquiescing to a command, but its acquiescence is a reaction and not a yes saying. By the sign, an organism is oriented to the world according to its needs of survival and reproduction. An animal takes notice only of things which are either dangerous or beneficial to it. That which is neither dangerous nor beneficial is passed over. But the child who learns that this is a ball will then wish to know what is this here and what is that over there. He will wish to know the name of the swallow in the sky, even though the swallow is nothing to him biologically. The swallow is ignored by the tiger, but the child must know what the swallow is. The scandal is, as Gabriel Marcel has said, that when I ask what is this strange flower, I am more satisfied to be given a name, even though the name may mean nothing, than to be given a scientific classification. If I see a strange bird, ask my bird watcher friend what it is, and he tells me it is a blue-gray gnat catcher, I am obscurely disappointed. I cannot help thinking that he is telling me something about the bird, that its color is blue-gray, and that it catches gnats. What I really want to know is what it is. If he tells me it is a starling, I am satisfied. This is enough to make a semioticist lose his temper. He will tell me that I am only falling victim to primitive word magic. There is something in what he says, as we shall see. Yet it is possible that there is another reason for my satisfaction. It has to do with the new orientation which has come about as the result of naming. This orientation is no longer biological. It is ontological. It has to do with a new need. A need which no longer is an adaptive or reproductive need, but the need to affirm the thing as being what it is for both of us. But how can a bird, a flower, be affirmed? It can be affirmed only by means of a name. As Alan Tate has pointed out, it was a general belief in the West until the 17th century that human beings do not know things directly, as do the angels, but only through the medium of something else, the symbol. In order that the strange bird be known and affirmed, a pairing is required, the laying of symbol alongside thing. This pairing is the source of the scandal, for it occurs by the use of the copula. Is. This is monstrous when understood as a real identity, but the difficulty disappears when it is understood as an intentional relation of identity. Korzybski became angry when anyone picked up a pencil and said, This is a pencil. Say anything at all about the pencil, he insisted, but never say it is a pencil. But unless you and I say it is a pencil, Unless it is a pencil for both of us, we may not say anything about it at all. Naming brings about a new orientation toward the world. Prior to naming things, the individual is an organism responding to his environment. He is never more nor less than what he is. He either flourishes or he does not flourish. A tiger is a tiger, no more, no less, whether he is a sick tiger or a flourishing tiger. But, as soon as an individual becomes a name-giver or a hearer of a name, he no longer coincides with what he is biologically. Henceforth, he must exist either authentically or inauthentically. An organism exists in the biological scale of flourishing, not flourishing. A person exists in the normative scale of authentic, inauthentic. The scales are not the same. A person may flourish biologically while at the same time living a desperately alienated and anonymous life. Or a person may be sick biologically and at the same time, perhaps even as a result of it, live authentically. In the joy of naming, one lives authentically. No matter whether I give a name to or hear the name of a strange bird, No matter whether I write or read a line of great poetry, form or understand a scientific hypothesis, I thereby exist authentically as a namer or a hearer, as an I or a thou, and in either case as a co-celebrant of what is. But when names no longer discover being, but conceal it under the hardened symbol, when the world comes to be conceived as, as Alice's museum of name things, shoes and ships and sealing wax, then I am bored. I exist as a knot in the center of the picture book world of the Ensoi. A tiger neither celebrates being, nor is he bored by it. Confronted by being, which is biologically neutral, he goes to sleep. Since a person does not coincide with what he is, He may be either better or worse than a tiger. An organism is oriented to the world according to its organismic needs, but a person is oriented to the world in the mode of truth-untruth. It is a mistake to speak of truth-untruth in connection with an organism and a sign. A duck may make an error about a sign and mistake a hunter's call for a duck's call. Yet, even if he is killed... Until the moment of his death, he never ceases to be what he always was, an organism responding to a sign according to a conditioned brain pattern. But for a person, the self-same symbol which discloses being may be the means by which being is concealed or lost. The symbol sparrow is, at first, the means by which a creature is known and affirmed and by which you and I become its co-celebrants. Later, however, the same symbol may serve to conceal the creature until it finally becomes invisible. A sparrow becomes invisible in ordinary life because it disappears into its symbol. If one sees a movement in a tree and recognizes it and says it is only a sparrow, one is disposing of the creature through its symbolic formulation. The sparrow is no longer available to me. Being is elusive it tends to escape, leaving only a simulacrum of symbol. Only under the condition of ordeal may I recover the sparrow. If I am lying wounded or in exile or in prison and a sparrow builds his nest at my window, then I may see the sparrow. This is why new names must be found for being, as Heidegger thinks, or the old ones given new meaning, as Marcel thinks. The fear of an organism is appropriate. It is no more, nor is it less than is warranted by the sign which arouses fear. The measure of the fear and the visceral and muscular response to the fear are specifically determined by the character of the threat. But the anxiety which follows upon symbolization is ambiguous. The same anxiety may be destructive biologically, for it serves no biological function. One is afraid of nothing, and at the same time, a summons to an authentic existence. It is for this reason that a physician and a metaphysician take opposite views of anxiety. Freud looking upon anxiety as a symptom of a disorder to be gotten rid of. Kierkegaard looking upon it as the discovery of the possibility of becoming a self. Anxiety may simply occur when something is encountered which can neither be ignored nor named. Anxiety may, thus, vary all the way from a slight uneasiness to terror in the face of the uncanny. A strange bird may cause a slight unrest until it is named, but the appearance of a three-masted trading schooner in place of the usual two-masted one may provoke terror among Melanesian islanders. In the everyday world, one is under the strongest compulsion to construe things one way or another. Even things which are in fact unknown tend to be construed as things which are already known. Once Helen Keller knew what water was, she had to know what everything else was. After this total construction of one's world, it is only when something is radically different and resists interpretation in terms of the familiar symbols that one experiences the uncanny, that which is not yet known or symbolized. By the same token, anxiety may also occur when one discovers that, of all the things in the world, oneself is the only being that cannot be symbolized. Everything else in the world tends to become ever more densely formulated by its name. This is a chair. That is a ball. You are Robert. We have democracy and freedom. But I myself escape every such attempt at formulation. A person who looks at a group picture looks for himself first. Everyone else in the picture looks more or less as he knew they would. They are what they are. But he does not know what he is, and so he looks to see. And when he finds himself, he always experiences a slight pang. So that is who I am. But this formulation is ephemeral, and he will do the same thing with the next group picture. The being of the namer slips through the fingers of naming. If he tries to construe himself in the same mode by which he construes the rest of the world, he must necessarily construe himself as nothing, as Sartre's characters do. But this is not to say that I am nothing. This is only to say that I am that which I cannot name. I am rather a person, a namer and a hearer of names, nor are you formulable under the auspices of a symbol. If I do conceive you as a something in the world rather than as a co-celebrant of the world, I fall from the I thou to the I it. Yet I am not able to dispose of you as finally as I dispose of shoes and ships and sealing wax. There remains your stare, which may not be symbolized. If I am determined to dispose of you by formulation, I had better not look at you. Even in its most primitive form, naming is a kind of judgment. It is also a kind of primitive abstraction. It is an affirming of a thing to be one of a sort of things. But this sort is not usually what is meant by a concept. It is far less abstract. I take it to be roughly equivalent to Lotz's first universal. This primitive abstraction contains the anlage, both of scientific abstraction and of poetical naming. When a tribesman utters a single word, which means the sun shining through a hole in the clouds in a certain way, he is combining the offices of poet and scientist. His fellow tribesmen know what he means. We have no word for it because we have long since analyzed the situation into its component elements. But we need to have a word for it, and it is the office of the poet to give us a word. If he is a good poet and names something which we secretly and privately know but have not named, we rejoice at the naming and say, yes, I know what you mean. Once again, we are co-celebrants of being. This joy is as cognitive and as ontological as the joy of a hypothesis. It is a perversion of art to look upon science as the true naming and knowing, and upon art as a traffic in emotions. Both science and art discover being, and neither may patronize the other. Daffodils that come before the swallow dares and take the winds of march with beauty. This is a naming and a knowing and a truth-saying at least as important as a botanical classification. If we must speak of a need in connection with human behavior, let us speak of it as Heidegger does. The need is to preserve the truth of being no matter what may happen to man and everything that is. Freed from all constraint because born of the abyss of freedom, This sacrifice is the expense of our human being for the preservation of the truth of being and respect of what is. In sacrifice there is expressed that hidden thanking which alone does homage to the grace wherewith being has endowed the nature of man in order that he may take over in his relationship to being the guardianship of being. Martin Heidegger, Existence and Being 1960